welcome to Photo Geek Weekly, episode 149, recorded on June 6th of 2021. I'm your host, Don Kamarechka, to geek out about photo stuff, the Photo Geekery show where, uh, you know, we typically find about four stories through the news. It could be copyright, it could be new camera developments or lenses or new gear that makes a difference in our lives as photographers, or it might in the future, and lots of stuff in between all of that. Uh, always is a guest host, and I try to switch it up as best I can. Um, so this week is my good friend out in Tübingen, Germany, uh, or the surrounding area, Alan Attridge, fellow Canadian living overseas. How are you, Alan? I'm doing great. How are you? I am well. Uh, well, as well as can be. Uh, I had my uh, my COVID vaccine date pushed up a little bit. I was supposed to get it on the 9th. I had it on the 1st. Felt like crap for a couple of days, but it was... Or getting into it. Is this your, your first shot? My first shot, yeah. So okay. uh, I, I don't know why it knocked me off my feet. Maybe it's because, mm-hmm. you know, you might want to sleep in that extra hour or two, but with a five-year-old, you just don't get that <laughs> extra bit of recovery in your day. Uh, so... Yeah, Are you talking was, about which one you got? Because it's actually important in, in terms of the, the, the next day, the day after effect. Uh, it was Pfizer. And that the first one knocked you. Uh oh, the, the first one. So you're in for knows? a ride then. I'm probably going to be in for a ride. You know, I was I was wrapping uh, or like building boxes to to ship out my books, and it was something like eight o'clock at night, and I'm doing that. But you know, it's kind of muscle memory after you just kind of start folding. You're not even thinking about how you're doing this. And I realized that I had my eyes closed for like the past four boxes as I was building them, and I thought, no, it's it's time to go to bed. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I had round two, uh, a couple last week and, uh, of the, uh, the Moderna, the same thing, but, uh, the first one didn't touch me. And, uh, and, and they told me at the, the, the Impfung center, the vaccine place, I said, okay, well, the second one, they would give you more and it usually it's a, it's stronger. And I was like, ah, I'll be fine. Uh, I was fine, but I could definitely feel that something was happening. And I've heard kind of the opposite, uh, that some people, uh, their first dose is uh, hits them harder than their second. Uh, my wife, who's had both, hasn't really felt much. She was a little bit tired after the second. But anyhow, I digress. Um, I'm uh, starting to catch up a little bit and feel pretty well back to 100% on that. Um, which is why we didn't record an episode of this podcast earlier in the week. Uh, just had no mojo for it. But um, here we are. Actually, I'm glad we waited because there's been some fun stories uh, that have come about in the last little while. Before we get to them, though, uh, Alan, uh, what's new and exciting with you? Just that vaccine stuff. That's about it. Okay. <laughs> oh, no, but here's here's the thing. The, the day I got I got my, my second shot, it was timed. It, it I got my shot five minutes before... My first baseball practice in two years started, so it worked out. I went, I went from one to the other, and so the next day I was in a lot of pain, mostly from the baseball practice. So, uh, turns out I'm old, and you can't take <laughs> two years off and and go back and play right away. Uh, a lesson I forgot but learned. Yeah, got so to starting to do that beforehand. Got to make sure. Yeah, yeah, that that. Definitely going to do that next time. So that's happening. The uh, the weather's getting better finally. We've had a terrible spring, and uh, and and so we're you know get out and enjoy the sunshine a little bit more. Hopefully coming up. That's that's what's going on here. Kids yeah, are playing we, some sports. We got thirty two degrees Celsius weather outside uh, right now, and I'm sure that possibly even during this recording, I'll get a text message from my wife saying, "Can you can you turn the sprinkler system on for a few minutes?" <laughs> So my daughter can run around the backyard. And luckily, 
I can control that from my smartphone. Thank you, uh, Wi-Fi enabled smart home devices. Um, I can uh, I can set off a massive irrigation system into the backyard that'll probably cost me I don't know twenty dollars if I leave it on for a half an hour. <laughs> I see, but but can your daughter still drink from the hose? That's the that's part of. The- oh yeah, the hose is always there. Uh, All right, no problem with that. But uh, but no, like we've got a four zone sprinkler system uh, in, in the backyard, and uh, and I remember the first time we when we bought this house, and I thought, oh well, that's convenient. Let's just set this thing up and let it roll. And then I got a six hundred dollar water bill. <laughs> really? Yeah, that was for two months, mind you. But still, that was uh, that was a real kick in the pants. Okay. <laughs> Anyhow, good tip. Uh, I'm glad my office is in the basement right now, or it's a little bit cooler. Um, let's get into the stories, shall we? Um, this one is an interesting one. We usually don't get a whole lot of overlap between uh, photography and video games on uh, on this podcast, but the overlap of those two things in this Venn diagram is copyright infringement, a topic near and dear to my heart that every photographer needs to pay more attention to. A Petapixel article uh, written by Michael Zhang. Um, Photographer sues Capcom for $12 million for using her photos in video games. The video game in question here is Resident Evil 4. Um, So I'll read a little bit of this and then we'll dig into some of the specifics. Um, Photographer has filed a lawsuit against Capcom accusing the Japanese video game giant of infringing her copyright by using her photos extensively in its best-selling video games. Polygon reports that Judy A. Uh, Jurasek filed her initial complaint in a Connecticut court yesterday. Now, I just I want to stop there and say that yesterday, Resident Evil Four came out in two thousand and five. Okay, just putting that on the table right now. Right, um, and and there and this company is based out of Connecticut, uh, Japanese video game giant. So I'm not sure um, uh-huh. where their Connecticut connection is. Maybe the photographer is from Connecticut. I'm I'm not sure exactly why Connecticut court was the choice here, um, but copyright is a uh, is a federal law. So really, you can file that c- kind of anywhere. I mean, there's stipulations as to exactly where you file it, but um, Anyhow, uh, Jurasek is a designer and photographer who has published several books with photos of various surfaces uh, to serve as visual research resources for artists, architects, and designers. The 1996 book and companion CD-ROM at the center of this lawsuit is titled Surfaces. Um, And the description states that it, quote, offers 1,200 outstanding, vibrantly colorful visual images of surface textures, wood, stone, marble, brick, plaster, stucco, aggregates, metal, tile, and glass ready to be used in your designs, presentations, or comps as backgrounds or for general visual information. Um, So she's suing for $12 million because um, it's not just one that was used. A lot of the content uh, from, I'm guessing, that same uh, archive of, Mm -hmm. uh, of sample stuff was used, including in the four for Resident Evil 4, like in the main logo, there's the, right. um, the there's glass, a, a shattered glass pattern um, that, uh, you know, once you do the direct comparison and overlays, yeah, you can pretty well see that it's there. There's a lot of other ones, though, that, I mean, I'd have to see exactly what the original license for creating this work was, because there's some stained glass window artwork. There's sculptures. There's mm-hmm. details on doors and everything uh, else. And um, that are included in this 1996 tome of textures. Um, but copyright 
is not just the photographers in that point, right? Because if you sculpt something, then you as the sculptor own the copyright to that. And it would have to have some sort of transcending license or was done predating uh, any copyright law. The same thing for stained glass artwork uh, and everything else. Even there's an image of uh, like a, a bricklayer pattern in this article. And they're all kind of in this really weird arrangement. It's actually kind of neat to see bricks laid out in this kind of hodgepodge kind of style. Um, but whoever did that, obviously, I would consider that some level of artistic input from the bricklayer to create that. Um, who was the bricklayer and are they represented within that? So I think it goes back a couple of ways. But at the very least, um, Jurasek had this... Uh, uh, this collection of things that in so many different ways, in so many different artifacts throughout this video game, um, it's, uh, yeah, it's pretty clear that that is an infringement on those images, whoever actually owns the the rights to it therein. What are right. your initial thoughts here after I've droned on for a while? Well, I, I sell prints, like I took a photo of the Eiffel Tower at night a while ago, and I sell those on the side, so... <laughs> I do not. That's a that's a that's a that's a red flag. You you, you, are, you are referring very much to the fact that the Eiffel Tower does not have copyright associated to it because the architecture predates copyright laws. Yet the lighting system at night mm. for the Eiffel Tower is included within copyright and is indeed copyrighted. So photograph it during the day all you want. At night you've got to pay Paris some amount of money or something. I don't even know if they allow you to use it, uh, but copyright entangles into that scenario there as well. This show is called Photo Geek Weekly for a reason, Don, and that's why you knowing that uh, specific fact is why. <laughs> so so I thought about this, and I thought, uh, uh, copyright aside, or whoever owns the copyright, whether it's, it's the photographer or whomever, I, I kind of thought about this and thought, why... Why did the the Japanese game company do this? What was their reasoning behind it? Whether they knew better or didn't. And the first of all, the, the big thing that jumped out at me was the number twelve million dollars. That seems a lot, but I looked this up a little bit because uh, Resident Evil Four has been out for a long time. As I said, uh, uh, two thousand five. Um, and so initially it was available on you know, the GameCube and the PlayStation 2, because those were the consoles at the time. Now it's out on PlayStation 4 and so on. As of September uh, 30th of 2020, so that's fairly recent, uh, Resident Evil 4 has sold 10.4 million copies across all platforms globally. Um, and so that, that's a sizable number. That's uh, not quite 12 million copies to make a complete parallel between those two numbers. Um, so it's slightly more than a dollar per copy of the game sold. And if that was just for a singular infringement, that might seem like a lot. But the more I looked at those numbers and the more prevalence I saw of the infringements throughout the video game, um, that number started to feel slightly more real to me based on the total amount of profits that Capcom has probably made from the infringements. Without diving too deep in those numbers, uh, that number seemed great to me. And it seemed completely justified. And it... It it led me to to think back to the the number of the number of times that I have been approached to work on quote unquote low budget projects, um, like usually film projects, and the the pitch is always the same. It's look, we have no money, but if you volunteer your time and come out here and bring all your equipment and and really just you know come out and bust it and and do great work and this and this this sells, then we'll pay you. 
That's not how it works, though. And I said, like, there has to be some benefit to me rolling the dice. I'm not going to go out and work and maybe, maybe I'll get scale. What I will do if I choose to decide, uh, if I decide to 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 go ahead and work on this is, sure, let's let's say I get X. Normally, if you were to hire me, you had to pay me X in order to to, to do this for you. Well, I'll do it for free. And if it sells, I want 3X. Yeah. I am an investor in your in your product. Now, if if all investors ever do well, is I, I, hopefully I, would, I wouldn't do it for free. I, maybe that's just a different. No, no, project, I, I, did, but, I never but, did. But, but, I'm just but, but let's say I do it for half X, and if it sells, you know, give me two or three X, right? I mean, Possibly. I'm giving you a discount on things. You want me because you love my work. Well, then I have to be worth something to you. Exactly, um, and uh, of course, get it all in writing. Now, the interesting thing about uh, these types of CDs, we're talking about, you know, the mid 1990s when, when this was released. Um, I wasn't able to track down whatever the end user license agreement or usage terms of the content within that CD were. I mean, I don't know if uh, simply purchasing a copy of that or owning a copy, even if you purchased it secondhand, so you physically have a copy of this, which you could have picked up at a yard sale for a dollar. Mm -hmm. um, would have granted you the rights to use these things commercially. That might be true. Uh, and at that point, that might make this lawsuit tricky because as soon as you put out a body of work um, that has some uh, outdated or vague licensing terms that could be interpreted in different ways, uh, like I've always seen uh, back in that same vintage of, uh, of computer packaging, you know, there's always this label, uh, usually like a circular sticker that says breaking the seal means that you agree to the terms and service. Well, just cut the box open. Uh, right. You know, <laughs> you, you, I never broke the seal, right? So I don't agree <laughs> to the terms. Uh, it, there's so many different things that you could do to skirt around uh, that. And uh, yeah, I don't know how successful she's going to be uh, in, in this particular lawsuit, but copyright infringement, it Clearly, her work has been used without an established contract after the original, uh, you know, uh, production of her work decades earlier. Um, and uh, now we're going to watch this unfold. I, uh, again, this has just been filed. And so I don't know exactly how far this is going to go and how long it's going to take or if it's going to get settled out of court. Um, but I, I kind of want this to go a couple of steps further into discovery. Because I want more details. I, I want to know the, the nitty gritty about this uh, yeah. and really sink my teeth into this. Because you know what? If I were to be playing a video game, which I used to do a lot of, haven't done much in the last five years. But um, And if I just see this beautiful winterscape landscape and I see a snowflake float by that I recognize as one of mine. <laughs> you have bigger problems. <laughs> uh, uh, you better believe I'm talking to my lawyers about that. Um, but yeah, to, to be honest, though, I have seen some packaging, uh, you know, uh, just in storefronts and, and what have you that are using snowflakes. And uh, some of them are so similar to some of the stuff that I photographed that I've taken photos of the packaging to come back and reference to my material. Which in itself might be... No, wait, never mind. Um, I, in doing so... I, I cannot name the company and everything else, but I did find a connection there. And that has been resolved much to my satisfaction. I hope for you it's Disney. Uh, I, I cannot say who it is and who it isn't, but I can tell you that I have never had any dealings with Disney. Um, 
So one way or another. Deep pockets, yes. those guys. Yeah, but what, what kind of made me think about this was was if this company had decided they wanted to use all these images, what would it have cost them? Because these these are cool images, but they're not tremendously intricate. Like he, what what would they if they phoned you you uh, five years ago and said, uh, Don, we need you know fourteen shots of these different services. What could, how much are you gonna charge us? Well, it all depends on what the project is going to go into. You know, if it was that long ago, I might have used a, a, a rights-managed uh, photo calculator, like from Getty Images, which they no longer have available. But you could plug in all the numbers, and mm-hmm. uh, and it would uh, sort of generate something that you would judge as fair or unfair and modify to your tastes. Um, but if somebody wanted to, say, produce a video game with my artwork, uh, I would have stipulations on the quantity sold uh, and the royalties therein. So... You know what? If you uh, if you sell a hundred thousand copies, uh, then you know my uh, my my licensing fee is ten thousand dollars or something like that, right? Right. Um, and uh, if you sell more than that, then it's X number of cents or dollars per copy. Uh, it's not twelve million dollars. Uh, but no, well, at that point, it it could be a significant number. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it it could be you know, two, $3 million, you know, but, but it's not going to be 12. And so you then have to look at actual damages versus punitive damages and statutory damages. And, you know, whether or not they knew this was wrong and still did it, um, that's sort of the punitive side of things and statutory damages, whether or not the images within um, this uh, collection of work was, uh, had their uh, copyright registered because a lot of people don't register their copyright. And if you don't, then you are limited only to the actual damages at play and nothing more than that. Uh, so maybe this is a PSA. I'm not American. I register the copyright of all of my work in the United States of America um, because uh, that affords me protections under the Copyright Act when somebody within that country uh, violates my copyright. Uh, so much so that if you've registered a lot of lawyers and if anybody wants to reach out to me and get some names, I'm happy to give them. Uh, of my lawyers, uh, they'll work on a contingency basis and uh, they'll take a percentage of whatever the settlement is, but I don't have to pay up front to protect myself. And that makes it uh, a lot more approachable for photographers that don't have huge budgets to pay you know, expensive lawyers and so on. Um, so we'll see where this goes. Uh, but again, every photographer, anybody, even if it's a throwaway image that you think, um, there was one image that I had photographed of uh, Frost. Was frost growing? I think it was like on the back window of my car. Like, and I, I posted it online somewhere at one point. This was fairly early on in my career, and I was happy with it. I've done better work since, but um, it was iconic enough that um, a TV production company decided to use it in a promotional advertisement, um, and it was immediately recognizable as mine. I, it had gone through some filters and some changes, but you know the, the core of it was the same. It was a derivative work and thereby I still own the copyright to it. Uh, and that was settled. But it wasn't an image that I would have really thought to myself, oh, I'm gonna ha- I have to register the copyright to this. I just threw everything into the registration bucket. Um, and in the US, you can uh, register up to 750 images a year um, which I publish less than that, uh, and, uh, for $55. So there's no reason why you shouldn't do that because if at some point, 10 years from now, you discover eight years ago, 
somebody infringed on your copyright 10 years ago, 15 years ago. I mean, so long as your registration of your rights are timely, then you are protected and you can go and, you know, get some good retirement money happening. Um, if it was the case of uh, Capcom using it in Resident Evil 4. Okay, good tip. So there you go. Um, we'll keep our finger on the pulse of this one. Uh, I, I I played this game. In fact, I had it for the, the GameCube. I bought the limited edition that included a chainsaw-shaped controller. Um, <laughs> a bloody chainsaw-shaped controller, you know, the red paint splatter all over it. And I think even uh, that particular controller in that particular platform had a special feature, like it had a motion sensor in it, that if you actually were yielding a chainsaw in the game, lifting the chainsaw up and down would your character would reciprocate and make the same movements it was kind of cool um so i've seen these infringements uh more than a decade prior to now and i just didn't know what they were but now i do uh i wish i still had that chainsaw controller anyhow i digress nhl, NHL pa 95 is the last video game i've ever played so it's been that long <laughs> it's been a while been a while for me too not quite that long um, all right, let's get into our next story, which is kind of a double header uh, from DP Review. Canon EOS R3 will shoot 30 frames per second robbers with oversampled 4K and 8-stop image stabilization. And also uh, from Petapixel, Nikon, the team developing the Z9, understands its grand expectations. And I just want to read something from the headline of that article saying that in a recent interview with um, PhiloWeb, Nikon's uh, Fumiyuki Wakao, the company's general manager of planning and marketing, said that the team developing the Z9 professional camera uh, was dealing with, quote, great expectations and responsibilities, and, they, uh, and that they were, quote, struggling to reach that goal. Um, so these are lofty cameras that we are uh, seeing come out, that the flagships sort of, and who knows if there's ever going to be an R1, likely in the future there would be, but these are going to be the juggernauts going head to head from Canon and Nikon. Question number one, I guess, Alan, are they needed? Uh, and question number two is, do you see there to there'd be enough of a market for these cameras to be priced at the prices that they were previously between six and eight thousand dollars i suppose they are always on release or will there be so less of a demand for them that you're going to have to add a lot of thousands to these cameras to make them profitable for these companies that was my initial reaction as well like who who is this for but i think canon and nikon they must know or they would not have dumped the r d into this they would not have have have, have gone this this route. Um, my my you know first instinct is whatever happens with the Olympics this year could potentially hurt them because this is where I would see the big debut of these these if they're if they're ready in time. I would imagine at least prototypes would be and they would get out and be shooting uh, with these flagship cameras at the Olympics. This is typically where I think it's Canon likes to um, showcase their their stuff. Yep. So that that might not you know be the best timing depending on what happens, but yeah, I, I think there's going there must be a market for it. I'm looking at these and and obviously they're very expensive. What was the the sticker price on the R3? I couldn't find that. No, I, and I don't think that there is one yet. Um, but I do remember when I was buying a 1D series camera body previously, and these are Canadian dollars. Uh, I believe I paid just under seven thousand dollars for a 1DX Mark II. Okay. Um, 
And that, that was with a professional discount through Aiden Camera in Toronto, I believe. Um, normally, it would have been into the 7,000s. But um, th that's the, the price that people have typically been paying for these. And I don't know if you can deviate from that price point too much. Um, and yes, you're going to get some great features. Uh, to, to have an eight-stop image stabilizer doesn't state exactly how that is achieved. It would likely be between a lens and an in-body stabilization system together. Um, right. And uh, raw internal video recording, uh, which I think a lot of people have been asking for, if you are shooting video in the field, uh, you don't want to have an external recorder in certain scenarios. Um, I don't mind it. I loved having the external monitor as well for a lot of the shooting that I do. And I was just mm -hmm. doing some earlier today. Um, but uh, having it internal as an option is always a great thing. And so it's bigger and better and bolder. Uh, dual card slots with CF Express and SD. This is on the R3. Um, with uh, Canon Log 3 for the video people. So they're really aiming for this to be uh, you know, a great stills and a great video camera, um, the likes of which the professionals that are really pushing the edge of, like you said, the Olympics, right? You, you want to have the best images possible for those types mm -hmm. of things. Um, but is the average sports photographer, are, are they missing a lot of shots now? Because you just didn't have the technology that was, you know, up to par. Uh, I, I don't think so. No, they, they, they got good enough, uh, a few, quite a few years ago. And, but I mean, at 30 frames a second, that's kind of, that's pretty fantastic. Um, I mean, you're, you're essentially, you could shoot a movie of stills. You could shoot 24 frames per second. Yep. As stills. I'm not sure you can dial it into exactly 24. I'm, I'm not sure how that works. Uh, the but previous 1D ca uh, camera bodies, you could adjust your uh, your frame rate to like be like a solid probably 24.0 frames per second, uh, right. not 23.97. But um, yeah, it, you could do that in the previous bodies that were like 14 frames per second at the highest, but that was always useless for me. My flash could never keep up. So I would right. dial that down to you know 10 frames per second or something. Um, so you know, whatever the limit that was more, most useful to me, uh, there's no reason why that technology would not appear, um, in a, a new flagship camera. So it's been there in the past. So I, I like the fact that, I mean, the bigger body, uh, which typically I, I don't normally like, I like things to be more compact, um, like being able to shoot video internal, uh, instead of external. I like everything to be very, very simple. Um, potentially uh, one thing I'd see with the larger body, will that help with, with, with any heat dissipation that I know is not really a huge problem with the R5, R6, but I think it's still there ish. It should be an absolute yeah. non-issue would be my guess. Well, and, and yeah, cause if you've got this, uh, this down, uh, you know, the, the, the full grip built into it, you can even build heat pipes into, into this device and have heat pipes running around the bottom um, area, so long as it's not like adding a lot of extra heat right around the battery compartment, heating batteries is not a great idea. Um, mm -hmm. But you have more space to to move things around, right. and um, and you know if you've got like a desktop computer or even most laptops will have heat pipes um, that uh, they funnel all of the heat well away from uh, from the processors uh, to fans and things that have greater airflow and uh, and a larger surface area so that you can cool things down. And I think camera manufacturers are starting to get a little bit wise to this. Um, and there were some simple hacks on the R5 that adding in some uh, thermally conductive pads inside the camera body actually made a big uh, improvement on the heat dissipation of the camera. Uh, and these 
you know, if you were thinking about that from an engineering standpoint at the very beginning, then, you know, that would have been part of the initial design spec. Um, it wasn't, and Canon has been kicking themselves for that. So obviously you will have uh, some, some rectified scenario uh, with the R3. It looks, like it's got, uh, it looks like it has a swivel screen on the back too, uh, which right. is nice. Uh, always like to have that. Uh, all the familiar knobs and dials that you would expect from that same exact class of body without any deviations or modifications that would require you to relearn the way the camera works if you were coming from another uh, fully gripped camera body just like this. So it seems like it would be an easy, easy switch uh, from anybody that's currently using uh, you know, the flagship class of cameras. But the thing is, is it going to be needed? That 30 frames per second, I think, is going to intrigue a lot of people, like, like you mentioned. Um, and, uh, you know, able to focus in light levels as low as minus 7 EV, which is very good, doesn't say how well it focuses at that level, though. So, you know, real world, uh, real world testing would be required in order to figure this all out. Um, it looks good, like on paper. Um, it looks like they're uh, paying attention to addressing the rolling shutter as well, which I think is getting better. And then sometimes it's a hit or miss, like some cameras get worse uh, from what I've seen. Uh, that's always been the big, big issue for shooting any any video digitally is, is the the rolling shutter, the jello effect. It, yeah. it just kills it. Um, you can still see it show up in, in, in movies every now and then. Uh, so if they can get rid of that reasonably, I think this is going to be a winner. Let's hope so. Uh, but then to the Nikon Z9 stuff, um, you know, I'll just uh, read another paragraph here. Uh, he explains that a, a true flagship device uh, from Nikon fans is a demand of a, quote, fairly high level, and therefore the development team is, quote, struggling to reach the goal. This, translate, uh, this translation makes it seem as though the team is not able to continually push the company's technology to meet expectations but the likely meaning of the word struggle, as it's translated by automatic services, is very likely different from the actual intent of the Japanese. And I don't speak Japanese, so I don't know if there is something lost in translation there. Um, what Wakao very likely means here is the team is endeavoring to meet those expectations. Like you're working really hard and working hard is often a struggle, but it doesn't mean that you're not going to get there. It's right, endeavor, right, right. Yeah. Um, uh, and therefore putting considerable effort into it, which is, quote, a struggle of sorts. Um, but, it, uh, but it is not likely meant to convey that the team is having a difficult time of reaching that goal. It, it's a, it's a limit-pushing camera. It's not going to be easy. Uh, if it was, it would have already been there, uh, right? So we don't have any real specifics of about what the Z9 is going to be, but I'm certain that the team at Nikon is going to be looking at what the team at Canon is doing and Sony and, and Lumix and everybody else. Um, and seeing how everybody is pushing the limits, what features the users are really gravitating towards. Uh, I, I, for one, love the high-resolution mode in my Lumix camera. I've talked about that before. Quadrupling the resolution for certain things is mm -hmm. amazing. Um, Nikon doesn't have that in any of their cameras. Neither does Canon, to my knowledge. Uh, Sony has it. You know, Fuji has it in their GFX line as well. Uh, Panasonic and, uh, and OM Digital Solutions, not Olympus anymore. Um, they have it there too. So uh, you know, there's, there's ways that you can push and add features that fans might enjoy that are already out there that don't really uh, cause you to reinvent anything. Uh, and I'm I'm curious what the Nikon Z9 is going to bring forward because there does have to be one thing, I think, 
that they do differently doesn't have to be better but in, in a different methodology than anybody else for them to stand out rather than just being oh well that's another good camera the focus ring goes the other way <laughs> well with focus by wire i'm so glad we can change that now <laughs> um but uh you know it, it, i've always been confused as to and this goes back years as to why nikon lenses go on one way and canon the other way and i always thought it had to something to do with patents but i really had no idea uh easy to circumvent a patent just by doing it in an opposite fashion and away you go and then you just stick with it um but uh at least for the the camera control dials you can invert those now anyhow um I, I wish Nikon the best, but it, it does seem that their announcement or that at least their interview of what they're endeavoring to create has zero substance other than the fact that they want to meet the demands of the users where Canon is at least providing some, uh, some solidity uh, to, to what's going into the camera. Wired LAN and 5 gigahertz Wi-Fi capabilities um, and, uh, you know, et cetera. Um, so uh, what was also interesting and this is something that I can't do, I don't think, with my Lumix cameras yet. Um, in addition, the use of Canon Speedlight products will still be possible when the EOS R3's electronic shutter is active. And this is kind of going to what you were saying about the rolling shutter uh, possibly being alleviated to some degree. Um, and that could be a huge advantage because, um, uh, again, going back to that, uh, that high-res mode, I've got to use that with an electronic shutter on my cameras. Mm -hmm. currently not compatible with flash. I have to use continuous light. And that does limit my usefulness of that particular feature in certain scenarios. And so it could, it, it's a niche thing. But right now, all of these big companies, they have to attack the tiniest niches in order to elicit a sale uh, to overcome problems that, well, most of the problems have already been overcome. Yeah, getting the if you can use that electronic shutter at very very high speeds with your regular Canon flash, uh, essentially you know instead of high speed sync, uh, that will be fantastic for a very select number of people. Um, but I'm one of them. Like that would be a huge huge plus being able to do that, be able to sync at like one two thousandth, one four thousandth of a second would be phenomenal. But we'll see if that is how fast they can go. All right. Well, let, let's talk on the other side of things, because you can push technology to its limits with the camera bodies. When it comes to lenses, however, there's some affection for vintage. Um, there's affection for uh, cheap, at least from third-party manufacturers, and um, reported from DP Review, Seven Artisans uh, releases three new budget-friendly uh, primes, including a fisheye and a macro lens. And that's uh, hot on the heels of Laowa, uh, uh, Venus Optics with the Laowa series of lenses, um, announcing that their four millimeter F 2.8 fisheye lens is now available as a native L-mount version for only 200 bucks US. Um, now that's an APS-C sized lens. It can adapt to a full frame L-mount camera, but you're gonna get a circular fisheye uh, effect at play in there. Um, lenses that are in the range of like one to $300, right? That, that's become a bigger market uh, now than it has in the past. And these lenses don't have autofocus. They don't have image stabilizers or anything. Uh, no modern conveniences built in. And oftentimes the aperture is controlled purely mechanically on the lens. So there's no communication with the camera body, allowing them to be made less expensively, infinitely adaptable to multiple different camera bodies simultaneously. But they can still be well optically designed, right? They don't have to uh, go through all the ridiculous 
computational engineering for the communication with the camera body, they can just right. focus on a really good optical formula, good glass, good coatings, uh, and nail it there uh, and keep the cost down quite a bit. Um, this is, I think this is going to be a continually growing market. I'm looking at these lenses from Seven Artisans, and I don't own any of their lenses yet, but a 10 millimeter um, uh, fisheye lens for, uh, they also make it in the Leica L mount, is really appealing to me, as is the circular fisheye lens from, from Laowa. Um, and with that macro lens, I mean, you know, I'm all about macro stuff. So um, uh, I, I, might, I might actually take a look at some of these because macro photography doesn't benefit from autofocus or image stabilization at all. <laughs> right. Uh, so I'd be curious to see how crisp and clear those images turn out, and it might be a good go-to lens. Um, I have too many lenses, Alan. I have gear acquisition syndrome when it comes to lenses and saying, right. oh, well, especially at these price point, a couple of hundred dollars, I'll treat myself uh, to a new toy. It's, it's not going to be like a, a new $5,000 coveted special, put it on a pedestal behind glass type of, type of lens. It's just the kind of the toy stuff. But the toy stuff's getting pretty good. But what do you think about all this? Well, I first, first thing I noticed was I didn't see any mention of an EF mount. Is that a sign yeah, of the times? It's, it's going away. Uh, so that sucks for you. <laughs> Not really. My, my cameras are getting old, uh, which is fine. Um, I, I'm still using them. They're great. But, you know, I, I, it, is, it is time to move on. Well, what it means is the, the optical designs are native to a mirrorless um, right. platform, right? So you can make that smaller flange distance and fundamentally design your lenses around that, which might even make for better optical systems. So these are, I mean, in, in that respect, um, they are relatively new. Yes. So, so how much R&D is reflected in these cheap prices? Well, I mean, you've got to design the optics, right? And that can be all computationally done. I've seen some great computer systems that can uh, design very unusual and expensive to manufacture optical systems by somebody just poking around in an afternoon and throwing some stuff together. Um, and to that nature, you can also screw it up pretty easily. Um, mm -hmm. Like Zong Yi Optics did with their Metacon 85 millimeter uh, macro lens, which I have two copies of. The first ones that they shipped out they miscalculated the numerical aperture for, uh, for the, the front element and everything was just painfully, woefully soft. Um, they, uh, they recalled all of those lenses from their initial shipment and, and fixed the problem. Um, I kept both uh, just because I wanted to kind of always point to their failure. But, um, <laughs> but they, they, you, can, you can design them easily. Uh, you can also make mistakes easily, but... Uh, if you are going to include uh, complex lens elements that are just very aspherical in their design, it might be harder to manufacture of more exotic materials, uh, you know, fluoride elements or ultra low dispersion glass, etc. Um, that's where some greater expense would come in. And I'm not sure exactly what these lenses utilize in order to prevent chromatic aberration and so on. However, with a shorter flange distance, you don't have to rely on those technologies as greatly as you would have before, especially for wider angle optics. Right. So these do look very, very cool. I mean, um, you know, were I to get a camera that would handle them, I, I, would, I would, my instinct is right away to look at the, the 55 mil. Um, first of all, this is the kind of photography that I, I, I miss. I've always liked this, the, the having the aperture on the ring, uh, the manual focus. I actually like manual focus in a select 
situation. Not always not doing the, you know, when I'm shooting the Olympics at 30 frames a second, I'm going to need bang on uh, autofocus. Uh, I'm not really involved in that. Um, it's, but so it's, it's, it's not for everything manual focus, but I, I miss it a lot. And so this would be kind of a great way to get back. The, the 55 mil is pretty much a great, like it, it is the, a great focal length for just walking around. My favorite for back in the film days was a 50 mil lens on my Canon FTB. I would take that everywhere. It was wide enough to be wide, close enough to be close. Not, it was neither, neither one nor the other, but it was really good at what it did. The one thing about the 55 is I'm looking at it. It looks like it only covers like a micro four thirds or an APS-C sensor. Yeah. Is that? Uh, so it, it, it covers APS-C. And so micro four thirds gives you a little punch in on that. And the same thing is true of their macro lens, um, which I, I don't, I don't mind because I've got my uh, my Lumix GX9. Love that tiny little camera. Uh, and uh, it's great for macro work. And I've got a number of macro lenses for it, including the Leoa 50 millimeter at f2.8 macro lens, which is phenomenal. I'd actually like to do a toe-to-toe uh, -to -toe comparison between the 60 millimeter f2.8 version two of the lens. I guess they've made improvements of the first one um, because it is designed on a slightly larger image circle. So corner sharpness is thereby theoretically going to be slightly better uh, because it's really hard to get the, the the very extreme corners of any image circle to be as sharp as the center of it. And you're, if you're punching in a little bit, yes, your lens is going to be bigger as a result, uh, but you might get uh, a slightly higher quality uh, images. So um, yeah, those two are designed around a slightly smaller sensor size, uh, but it does look like their fisheye uh, is going to be on, on all the big full frame uh Ideas and I'm still holding on to my Canon 15 millimeter f 2.8 fisheye lens. I love that thing. I did some great night sky photography out in the Yukon a number of times with that lens. I had it repaired once because the aperture died on it, uh, and uh, they ran out of repair parts shortly after I had my lens fixed. So it's going to go at some point, and I don't need that uh, aperture to be. Uh, automatic on such a lens. I'm carefully, carefully setting up a shot with a fisheye lens. And it's not a lens you're going to use often, right? You, know, you right. make your audience nauseous if you do. And uh, typically so these lenses on, on these manual lenses on your, uh, your camera, the, the metering will still work. Like you have to dial it in manually, but you're still going to get what the image you want. Exactly. Ever since the, uh, the, the, uh, invention, uh, for lack of a better term, of uh, live view technology back with the 5D Mark II, where you could use the sensor itself to uh, to kind of meter the scene rather than your sure. regular autofocus meter. Uh, and that that was in its infancy then. It wasn't great. But now, I mean, especially in the mirrorless world, that's, that's all you get. And uh, hmm. the sensors are designed around that to be much more useful. So uh, Now, have you never used, I've never used a manual uh lens on a on a mirrorless camera like that the one issue i i that when when shooting on a, on a dslr with a manual lens is nailing focus how does that change with mirrorless uh so focus peaking is amazing um so in the viewfinder uh you turn that feature on you choose whatever color you want i've got mine set to blue uh and it gives you sort of this blue haze over whatever is in focus like this pixely like it shows you exactly what plane of focus you are going to be focusing on and whatever is the most blue 
uh, is where your focus plane is. Uh, it's so easy to nail the focus that way because you can kind of write it forward and backward a little bit to see exactly where that focus is going to be better than you'd be able to detect with your own eyes, uh, even on a high resolution viewfinder. And so um, it's much easier now than it would have been uh, in, uh, in the film days because you've got that uh, computational assist uh, helping you out. So I uh, just want to mention the costs. The fisheye lens uh, is $270. That's the most expensive. Uh, and it appears that the first batch has already sold out. The 55 millimeter that you were uh, interested in um, is probably going to only sell for $130. Uh, and the 60 millimeter f2.8 macro lens, uh, that's currently listed at $180. So very reasonable prices for that. And of course, I mentioned the Laowa 4 millimeter f2.8 fisheye for 199, um, which has, I think, a 200 and 210 or some ridiculous field of view, like it's uh, sees behind itself uh, type of thing. And um, I don't really need that. I do want it, you know, just to say that I can, but um, sure. I, I have too many. I'm going to have to sell that Canon 15 millimeter fish. Anybody want to have uh, a lightly used and uh, recently repaired 15 millimeter Canon fish and lens? famous? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll Autograph. give you a print taken with it. Uh, <laughs> that might deal. be up for sale in the, in the near future. The, just, I want to quickly mention that I do recognize that the 55 mil on an APS sensor is no longer the field of view of, of the walking around like lens. 80, I like 85, uh, 90. Yeah. So no one, no, send all your emails to Dawn about how I didn't know that. Uh, I did know <laughs> it. I promise. All right. Uh, I will accept all hate mail. Um, Let's go on to our next and uh, final story in two parts. Uh, but before we do, um, Alan, where can people find you online uh, on your social media, on your uh, podcast as well? Go to the podcast. I am terrible at social media, by the way. Uh, I, I, I'll come out and admit it. Uh, but you can find us at twohosers.com where uh, Adam uh, Schwartz and I do a weekly show uh, for, wow, it's 10 and a half years now. Every single week wow. for 10 and a half years, Don. Uh, yeah, we call the two hosers photo show. We talk about, well, we start at the very beginning. We started, uh, getting Adam up to speed. He didn't know how to open the box that his camera came in. And now he's a actual working pro part-time pro. Um, yeah, that's it. Two hosers.com where you can go to find us. Fantastic. That link will be in the show notes at photogeekweekly.com, uh, as well as all of the links to the topics we're talking about, including the next one. Kind of comes in two parts. It's, it's about Apple at this point. Uh, report from DP Review. Uh, Apple is expected to use sensor shift image stabilization units on all of its next generation iPhones. Now, this is important because uh, on the, I think it was the wide angle lens of the iPhone 12 Pro Max had this technology uh, for moving the sensor around to improve the performance. Um, but uh, I think we're kind of hitting a bit of a wall in terms of optical design and sensor technology in terms of, I mean, diffraction becomes uh, an issue here. And uh, you have to make these bumps on the backs of these phones still as small as they are. You know, you can't expand on that space very much. Um, so Apple is uh, going in one of the directions that, you know, once I saw this announcement, seems predictable. Um, bake in that one technology that is maturing into every one of your camera sensors where you can move the sensor around as uh, either the primary and only um, image stabilization technology on a lens, possibly for lower end cameras, 
uh, or in addition to um, lens stabilization as well in order to improve the performance in low light uh, or, well, yeah, basically just low light at that point. Uh, and, and they're good enough in so many other ways to computationally correct for things. Are you an iPhone user or what, what are you using for a smartphone? And is the advances in camera tech very important for you? Uh, I do have an older iPhone, the original SE. I, uh, for me, the, the best part about the iPhone is that I, I like the, the smallest one I could get. That was my my criteria. So it could fit yeah. in my pocket. I don't care. I've, I've been made fun of for having a small phone. And I thought, wow, remember the days? Remember the 90s when we, we tried to go small, but then they went big. So uh, I use that. I, I, I went for, but by the way, I went for the iPhone 12 Pro and not the Max specifically because I didn't want a bigger phone. And right. I was, I, I almost went for the bigger one because it had better cameras on it. But I just couldn't cross that line. I like the smaller, more pocketable phone, and so there yep. I am. Yep, that's where I, that's where I'm at. And uh, I, I'm, I I use the 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 camera now and then. Um, you know, it comes up. Uh, I would probably use it more if I had the 12 or whatever comes out next. 13, I'm guessing. Um, 12 plus, I think they'll do, and then 14 sure. to avoid the numbers. But yeah. Oh, good, good call, good call. Uh, yeah, so it, it's not super important to me, but I. So when you sent me this story, I tried very hard to find a photo or a video of the original hand, a candy cam camcorder image type stabilization camera, and I don't know that you've ever even seen this. Like this was a gimmick that came out. I'm going to say sort of late '90s. This had so this would this would have been a Sony invention, right? I would have had to have been. However, it was a, I think it was pre-digital DV. So it must have been 96 or something like that. So it was probably a high eight or an eight millimeter video. And it had, I'm going to describe it to you physically because I could not find a photo. I would hope, hopefully you or some of the listeners can because it was hilarious. The listeners and, have been given a task. And it basically had the, the lens built in the camera sort of had like its own little kind of gimbal so that when you, when activated, you could bounce the camera up and down, but the lens would physically move inside the camera and say, well, I mean, that, say, that's kind of how an image stabiliz uh, stabilization system in a lens works today, but it's not obvious that that's what hap uh, is happening. But it's like they sold the very first prototype. They mass produced the very first, like someone thought, hey, you know what we could do? And in, in my head, the commercial, I think there might have been a kid riding, like a, a kid riding on a, like a bouncy horse or something. If that rings any bells, please somebody uh, let Dawn know. I want to I wanna see if we can find it because it was hilarious. Like it didn't last. It lasted about six months and then it was off the market because who needed it really? Right. However... Um, so if I understand this, this pixel shift stabilization correctly, and now I don't think I do, are you saying that the, the, the actual sensor physically moves, it changes its location? Yeah, so that would be the same that a lot of mirrorless cameras have now. Of course, you're not in that realm yet with your 5D Mark III, I believe you're shooting with. Um, but, uh, many mirrorless cameras have an in-body image stabilizer, which moves the, the sensor in the camera body up, left, uh, uh down and right, and slightly twists and turns if it needs to and it moves forward and backward and it's got like this five axis thing um depending on how it's designed and if you could take that technology it's already tried and true in many other platforms and it's even been built into smartphones uh, and even in a rudimentary just the uh, up down left right type of thing then uh 
then that will allow you to improve the ability of uh, of the uh, image stabilization, right? Uh, right. And I know like if I were to hold up my my phone just handheld in a really low light scene, it does a remarkable job at maybe taking shorter, very dark exposures and combining them together to remove motion blur and realigning them. Or it's the image stabilizer uh, in the uh, in the lens itself that's working towards that end in uh, in concert. And if I had a third element of uh, of the sensor being able to move as well, then that would uh, theoretically improve the low light performance. Uh, I don't want to say considerably, but to make the next generation of phones that much more desirable for those people that upgrade every year. Why is that preferable to doing what, say, uh, GoPro does and, and basically oversample and then just computationally stabilize the middle of the frame? I think that they also do that. I, I don't know exactly if they're, uh, like how much they're oversampling, um, but uh, I, it would be just higher quality results uh, in the end, and uh, it could potentially happen faster, uh, but and, and less motion blur, higher, you know, just optical clarity uh, when it came down to it, because you just have another tool in the toolkit um, that I'm sure uh, would be a great marketing point, right? They have this now on all right. of their cameras, or at least on all of their models, even if it's not on all of the cameras uh, within the devices. But uh, it could also be a point, uh, as I mentioned, if you wanted to exclude the optical image stabilizer uh, for expense reasons and uh, build in just the sensor shift stabilization technology into the entry-level phones, then you would still have a performance boost with a cost that is allowed to remain much lower than the flagship products. So um, there's something to be said for that there. I, I think that it's going to it's going to be ubiquitous mm -hmm. within the next couple of years. Any flagship phone from Google or Samsung or Apple or I don't know who's making Sony, uh, I guess, is still making some high-end phones. Uh, you're going to have that as just it's going to be a checkbox. It's going to be on every one of them. And so uh, if Apple does it, then I'm sure others will, will follow suit. And uh, we're going to see that. That might actually be, I, I was planning on keeping the iPhone 12 Pro for a long time, just because it's everything that I need it to be. But if they do massive improvements year on year to uh, the processing engine, and they uh, improve in a way that I can see, right? You're going to have to prove it to me that it's better in the camera sense. Um, then I might upgrade to the next one, and then that's going to be my cutoff. But I also think that if I'm saying that now, after saying that I'm going to keep this one forever, and I'm saying prove to me that the next one is going to be viable, and I'll buy that one, and that's going to be the next one for a long time. I'm just going to keep saying that. I'm just going to keep <laughs> Yeah, uh, that's a self-fulfilling prophecy right there. Exactly. Uh, and kind of uh, riding on the coattails of that story, um, the, uh, the new um, M1 iMacs have, have come out. And uh, whenever I see Apple technology, especially when it's made elegant and thin and beautiful, I always wonder, eh, what if it breaks? Or <laughs> um, I've had to replace the screens on my wife's iPhone numerous times. Thankfully, she's not on her current iPhone 11, but when she had an iPhone 6S, I think, um, I think I was in the double digits of screen repairs on, on that particular phone. Um, and, uh, you know, iFixit, this is also from DP Review reporting this, iFixit gives the new 24-inch uh, M1 iMac a proper teardown, uh, teardown treatment with a 2 out of 10 repairability score. 
That sounds um, terrible. Yeah, you're more likely to break this device taking it apart in ways that cannot be repaired, um, especially if you have little experience with this. And not just for repairs, for potential upgrades as well. Um, right. right. Like if you've had it for a while, but you know, it's getting a little long in the tooth. You want to put a, a slightly higher capacity or faster SSD in there. Maybe you want to do a Ram upgrade. Uh, no. Well, I, I don't want to say no, it, it can be done, uh, but it's near impossible. And we're not going to go into the minutia of what can be done and what can't. I want your opinion, Alan, um, about this whole movement of the, of the right to repair. Um, right. Because a lot of companies, Apple included, and they're one of the, the, the worst about this, um, they don't want you to be able to fix your stuff on your own. They want you to bring it back to them and them being the only source of repair or to make it so difficult that they would charge you more for a repair than a new one and just sell you a new one, making a level of planned obsolescence built into all of the products. So I wrote down um, the phrase planned obsolescence, which took me like nine tries until it, it spelled correctly. <laughs> um, I don't know how to spell planned, but the, the, I, I think it leans more towards the planned obsolescence. But the, the, the uh, I would say the optimist in me, I would say it actually more lies into, uh, towards Apple's dedication to design and integration. I like to believe that because that's the one thing. I've been an Apple guy for a long time. I, I, the first of any of my friends, I convinced all my friends to go Apple. This is back in, I think I bought it in 99. I bought uh, uh, the, the dual 450 G4 tower and I loved it. And that was back IS, uh, uh, Mac OS 9 yep. was running, um, which wasn't great, by the way. But what I did like about it, what I always liked about Apple is their ability to integrate everything. At the time, I was using Final Cut Pro, which I no longer use. Uh, but at the time, it was Final Cut Pro, designed by Apple or ported by Apple, and it was made to be used together. So everything kind of made sense, and it worked towards the same goal, and I love that. You didn't have 19 different people kind of trying to hold the paintbrush you know, while you're painting the, the, the 16th chapel. So yeah. that was a joke. The uh, <laughs> So... On the one hand, I love that. I love the fact that uh, that they are constantly designing things to to look better. In this case, they didn't. I don't. I don't like the new look. Uh, the colors seem odd, but I like the fact that they're trying to innovate on design and making it smaller and making it look good. I've had my friends who bought Apple way back. They bought like MacBook Pros, and like one of them said to me, "I just like walking around with it." Like it looks, it looks cool. I love yeah. the the magnet plug that they came up with. All these things are fantastic. That being said, I miss the old time TV repair shop. I, yeah, or you get anything that's broken. You know, whether it's a TV, a VCR, a coffee maker. Um, you know, the guy would say, "Yep, uh, I can fix that for ten bucks." Uh, right. You know, and uh, or like my dad used to work in an electronics repair shop. And there were times where somebody would bring in a broken VCR. I remember these specifically because a VCR was a relatively inexpensive item, uh, especially, you know, in, in the heyday when everybody was promoting home video. I don't know if they were getting subsidies from the movie manufacturers to lower the cost of the VCRs, um, but you could get one for dirt cheap. But they were relatively complicated devices inside. Yes. Uh, and so when one would break, um, you'd bring it to a repair shop. Uh, and... 
so often the cost to repair it was higher than the cost of buying a new one, even back then. Yes. And so as a small child, my dad would bring home broken VCRs and hand me a screwdriver and say, have some fun. Uh, just take it apart. There's no intent to put this thing back together. We'll yeah. just throw out the parts when you're done. And There's no uh, capacitors. You're fine. Yeah. Well, I mean, that, uh, n- none that would really give me a big jolt. Um, <laughs> but you know, it, to that end, uh, that's one of the, the really joyous moments in my childhood where uh, this thing couldn't be repaired. So it was my job as a seven-year-old to make sure of that fact. Um, right. <laughs> so, but here's the thing is, is our kids nowadays, I know kids these days, uh, but our kids nowadays, are they going to know what burning solder smells like? My daughter will. Um, yeah. So as will mine, I have a soldering <laughs> iron in the basement and uh, if they don't do their homework, I took a turn, but the, the, <laughs> I, I, but, I, but, but the, the idea too, I, I, I want to uh, kind of echo this thought. Will kids today know the burnt electronic smell, like when a transformer blows on something, right? Uh, which is a far more awful smell than burning solder? Um, I, I don't know if that's going to be necessarily as common, right? Because things are Good a little point. bit more robust in that area. But. Good point. So I, I do miss that. I miss, be, but not just because of you know the, the TV re- repair shop, the notion of it, but the throwaway culture that we live in. And I have a number of things where they break, and I'm like, yeah. It's just not worth, it's not worth my time to go get it fixed, let alone pay to get it fixed. It is so much cheaper to click on Amazon and then, and then just have a new one show up. It's, it's about an, a push, but then the old one gets thrown away and it's floating in the Pacific Ocean in that garbage patch, which sounds terrible. I'd like a, for us to stop doing that. How do we stop doing that? Uh disincentivize uh, the destruction of these things. I mean, like kind of go the opposite way. It's like, do you get um, like government subsidies for repairing electronics that can be saved, right? Like to make the cost of repairing them less uh, is, is one uh, area of, you know, potential improvement. So like if somebody uh, has a, like right now we have a broken food processor, a, 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 a juicer. And uh, I don't know why it, it works in reverse, but not forward. It could be just a simple issue with the switch, right? Because the motor still seems to function. Right. Um, but the company that makes it is in Germany. And so I, I might know a guy. <laughs> you might know a guy. But uh, the thing is, I don't know where I could even bring it now because those TV repair shops, they don't really exist much anymore. I no. might be able to find some skunk works in an attic somewhere where some old guy is still, uh, you know, farting away with, you know, old tube TVs, but I don't think so. At least not in my city. Uh, the camera repair shops have also gone away. And, and so I, I can't, I can't get it fixed. I mean, unless I take it apart and try to, uh, do it myself and in which case, well, what's to lose, it's already broken. Right. Um, and it's out of warranty. So there's that. This really big, heavy, well-made uh, juicer is going to hit the bin uh, unless I can find an ec- uh, economical way to, to get it fixed. And if that's the case, I'm going to buy a new one and I'm going to contribute to this problem, even though this one that I currently have, if there was some way I could conveniently get it fixed, maybe slap on my wrist for buying something manufactured overseas, but everything is. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, a lot of smaller manufacturers might not have, uh, you know, facilities to repair in every country around the world. So I, I don't know. Uh, but I think that if there was some sort of subsidy that would um, reinvigorate 
the uh, prosperity of such companies to to fix things. They, they have it for phones. Like you go into any mall, you'll have five places that will replace your phone screen. Really? Um, yeah. Uh, at least here, you know, at least there's four in the Georgian mall here. Uh, you know, um, and, uh, you know, some semi-official, some not, and we don't have a proper Apple store, uh, but you go anywhere, you, you can get it done. Uh, that needs to persist to all things, um, you know, and, and I, I don't know how, but uh, I, I like do know how, how I, I have solved it because it, what the, 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 the problem, the break, common breakdown is usually some little very specialized plastic part that you can't get. And that's that 3d, oh, 3D printing, printing is going to save us. All right. Well, make 3d printers free and, uh, 4D, 4D printers, <laughs> uh, printed through time. All right. Uh, have a copy of that part you need before you even know you need it. Um, uh, I don't minority, know minority report. That's the, that's the, yeah. The yeah. Part of that movie. <laughs> uh, Alan, we're into the picks of the week section. Um, what do you have for me? You know what's funny, and I can't believe you just said some skunk works up in something. My pick of the week almost, almost was the book Skunk Works because I just finished reading it today. One of the best books I've ever read. Absolutely love it. I highly recommend it to you. It'll be right up your alley, I promise. All right. Um, so it's funny you said that. But then I looked at the date, and the date as we record this, I don't know when this is coming out. Today is June the 6th. An anniversary that I I think about every single year. It is the anniversary of D Day. Yeah, um, and so and, and it's a very it's, it, it's a very important date in in history, and it's it's very important to me. And so I have been to Normandy. I've been through all the beaches there. It's it's an amazing place to go and and stand and 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 be a part of and just just try to fathom what it what it would be like well and ev every every allied country was given lofty goals to accomplish on that day right like uh, near impossible to accomplish them all uh, mm -hmm. and you know it was like it, we, we need to kind of um, stress beyond our capabilities to try and accomplish more than we know is possible because if we don't we're not going to do this thing and uh canada is uh and, and here i am being a proud canadian um, we are the only allied country that on D-Day accomplished every single goal that we set out to do on the mission of that day or the, you know, the surrounding time frame. And um, I think that Canada caught the ire of uh, the, uh, uh, the Nazi panzer dragoons. And uh, we actually held off their elite tank force in addition to accomplishing all of our goals for D-Day because uh, we had finished with those particular tasks. And I'm not saying that it was easy. I'm just saying that I am incredibly proud of the accomplishments uh, of my countrymen in past generations on that day. Indeed. So if you, if you have not yet been to Juno Beach, it's still, it's still called Juno Beach. I think it's Corsay sur Mer, Luc sur Mer, or the little villages uh, on that particular one. I went to the... The Canadian Cemetery, and believe it's beneath Sur Mer. I'm pronouncing that wrong, I'm sure. And I got goosebumps looking at the ages of the guys who died, uh, you know, on on D-Day and, and and shortly thereafter, fighting in, in Normandy. And it's an amazing spot. So my pick of the week, you'd think, would be Saving Private Ryan. You'd be wrong. Is the HBO miniseries Band of Brothers? Have you oh, ever that, seen a, that? A, uh, yeah, I mean, I haven't seen it in a while. I mean, that's a classic. So we start off the very first, the first episode, the pilot episode, uh, is is them getting ready. At the very end, it is D Day. It's June June the fifth. The, the paratroopers went over at, at night, 
Um, and episode two is D-Day. And from there, it goes right through their campaign, all uh, easy company, right through Europe. And uh, it is an amazing documentary, or documentary, amazing series that still holds up. Highly recommend it in honor of uh, D-Day. Now, how truthful is that to the actual events of, uh, of that time frame? I know some of it's compressed because I actually read the book that it was based on, Lieutenant Winters. Uh, he actually finished his... He was a lieutenant during the, that part of the, the story, and he, he was promoted. But uh, I read his book, and, uh, and so the best I can tell from how you know, true his book is to how, how accurate the, the, the miniseries is, obviously things are – I think some characters might be compressed uh, for time. Uh, but as far as I can tell – I mean, I wasn't there, Don. I was not born yet. But uh, I – it, 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 it's pretty amazing to see, and, and they, they did a great job with all the special effects. And what I like the best about it is, is right there in the name is Band of Brothers. It's, it's really, it's not necessarily about all the events, although that's a big part of it, but it's about the different uh, uh, men involved and how they intertwine and their personalities and the humanity behind a very hum- inhumane situation. A wonderful recommendation, and one that I think holds up quite nicely uh, in in the light of um, you know just re- remembering those acts and and the stuff that people have gone through. And um, there's a lot of days in history that that need to be remembered, not because they were great days, uh, but because they were really important to, to get the world to where it is today, for better or for worse. And there will be more great days in the future, uh, good and bad. And uh, that's a good one. Thank you for that, Alan. Uh, Mine is much less grandiose or important. My pick of the week um, happened because I was running out of business cards. I've been putting them in uh, in all the boxes of books in case anybody has any issues and you want to get in touch with me. Um, So I got to order more and some books might go out without them, but that's okay. I'm easy to find online. Uh, But I remembered that the company that printed these was called Montreal Printing. Uh, good Canadian company, um, but uh, they do, like it was far cheaper than I would have ever expected to do a complex business card. It's got spot gloss on it. It has foil stamping uh, on the front and the back um, so that it, uh, it really shines as, as, as a card. Um, and I would typically buy a thousand or 2000 of these at a time. And whenever they're done, I'll get another round and uh, maybe change up the images and so on for it. But they have these new elite cards that they could put these things like three three layers thick, uh, but die cut the top and the bottom layer or the top two layers or something to really create a three-dimensional card. And I've seen some examples that they have on their website where uh, you have like the, the middle layer all foil stamped, but then the top layer is die cut so that everything beneath the first layer, so it's actually depressed into it, is uh, shimmery and glossy and or whatever else you want it to be. You can get really creative with the designs of these cards, um, and they start at uh, you know just under three hundred dollars. If you want to get a really nice one, like I was specking out, you'd be looking at paying maybe around thirty cents a business card if you're buying two thousand of them. So it can get pretty pricey. But I've always had people look at my cards and be happy with them. Uh, and it, it's oftentimes your first impression for people. And we're starting to come out of this pandemic. We're not there yet. But a lot of people through the past year, year and a half, have decided to reevaluate um, uh, their jobs. It's a pivot to you know, have a different job title or be in a completely different industry. And as you're coming out the other side of this, you might need some new business cards. I know I do. 
and uh, and they currently have a sale on. Um, so they've got, I think it's 25% off and I'll put the link in the, uh, uh, in the show notes to that, uh, an early summer sale. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, uh, Montreal printing, they've been good to me in the past. I've done a, I don't know, six or seven business card runs from them. Uh, and, uh, I haven't found any place that does it cheaper or as good. And they've got some new options there that they didn't have before. So my next ones might be even fancier than my current ones. That is my pick of the week. That brings us to the end of the show. Um, Alan, thank you for being here. This has been a blast. I have uh, enjoyed your company once again for uh, an eloquent and detailed conversation. Your opinions are valued by me and the listeners. I never get any, uh, any negative feedback about you when you're on, except for the one time when you talked for about 10 minutes about your daughter's bicycle. Um, right. Yeah. So... Well, she's outgrown that bicycle, so I'm shopping for a new one. So uh, maybe Ten next more week, minutes uh, than Alan. Uh, yeah, yeah I got, I'll do 15. <laughs> He's getting older now. We can do that. <laughs> all right. Uh, thank you all for listening. Uh, this has been another fun episode. And uh, I'm still not fully vaccinated yet. The world is not back to normal. So don't take any risks. It is still time to stay in and shoot. 